and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Alexandra J. Roberts, Associate Professor of Law at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. We will discuss her work on online legal education. So welcome back to the show, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I think you're my very first three-peat guest. So congratulations. <laughs> awesome. It's like Saturday Night Live and I get a jacket, right? Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it, it's the mail. Um, uh, can we make it a patch instead? I have a few extras. Yes, I will take a patch. <laughs> um, so Alex, uh, I really am interested to talk to you about your experiences teaching a law school class online. Because it's something I'm really interested in, but I've never done before. And I know you just did it. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of why you decided to teach a class online, how it worked, the choices you made, and sort of what worked well, what didn't, lessons learned, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, So I'm at University of New Hampshire School of Law, and we recently decided to kind of branch out and partner with a company called iLaw to develop some online courses. And I raised my hand. I said I would be interested in doing that potentially. And so the first course that I turned into an online course that I um, worked closely with the instructional designers at iLaw on was my trademark course. So it's a basic, pretty traditional three-credit course. It's on trademarks and deceptive practices. I use a traditional casebook by uh, Graham Dinwiddie and Mark Janis. And um, so what I was trying to do really was, was mirror what I do in that residential course, make sure that the online students were really getting the benefit of all the different pieces of the magic that happens in the classroom. So the course is asynchronous. So that means that a couple of years ago, um, I kind of sat down and, and converted the syllabus into a different kind of format. And then I recorded a number of lectures. And I did that. Um, I didn't really want a camera on my face for hours on end. So I, I wound up doing slides with um, voiceovers and, um, and added a lot to my slides to keep kind of a lot going on in the visual field. And I try to, you know, throw up the marks that I'm talking about, the products I'm talking about, give people something to focus on because trademark law is obviously extremely visual. And we benefited a lot from the expertise of the folks at iLaw. So they were able to say, for example, you know, you never want to do an hour long video lecture. You want to do six minutes here eight minutes here, three minutes there. And, um, and again, keep the visuals interesting, keep the points really clear. And at the end of each of those, we do a short, we do a couple of multiple choice questions to kind of make sure the person is listening and tuned in. Um, and that also, I think, makes it easier for students who are juggling a lot of different commitments. So they don't feel like they have to do all the reading at once, and then they have to sit down and listen to a whole lot of lecture, which obviously is not great. Um, nobody really has the attention span for that. And then turn to the discussion boards. So instead, they can mix it up a little bit. They can do some reading, some lecture, some multiple choice, maybe write a first discussion post response, and then um, come back to the reading. And each week... Basically, the week starts, um, I don't know when it opens for the week, maybe Saturday or Sunday, but basically people spend Monday through Thursday um, 
with the lectures and with the reading. And then by Thursday night, they have a first round post due to a couple of different discussion prompts. And by Sunday night, they're asked to respond to their classmates. And then usually Monday or Tuesday, I go in and I review all those responses and replies. um, And I offer some feedback. So I might offer feedback individually to each student if I feel like they need some help or I want to give um, encouragement or something. And then also to the class as a whole to say, hey, there's only nine of you and three of you seem to be struggling with this issue. So let me clarify it. Let me give you a little um, follow up on that to make sure you're understanding what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, I mean, I got to say, this sounds like a awful lot of work. I mean, how much time do you think it took you to put the class materials together? And how much time do you spend uh, on quote unquote teaching, I guess, like virtually the class each week? Yeah, course creation was definitely time intensive. So I did that. um, I think that took me about three or four months. I started at the end of the summer two years ago um, and went into the fall and went through some back and forth with ILA, getting the materials really ready and complete. And then now, um, you know, I have the basic structure for the course and a lot of the pieces in place, but then the kind of management, the discussion feedback, things like that, I would say it takes about the same amount of time as teaching residentially. Um, What kind of feedback did you get from students from teaching the class? Did did they find it a positive experience? Were there materials they particularly liked or maybe didn't like? so much like so in your experience what seemed to work well for students in their experience and and what didn't yeah i i really got fantastic feedback um i especially the second time through i got some incredibly over the top um enthusiastic responses that frankly i was not expecting you know i i kind of expected students to say well it's not the ideal format it would be better to take it in person but it's okay Um, But a lot of them were really enthusiastic. And I think kind of depending on your personality type and depending on your learning style, this could be something that's a great fit for students who like to do things at their own pace, maybe like to do things a little bit more independently. Um, I think the first time through, maybe the workload was a little bit heavy because I had uh, two discussion posts every week that seemed to get longer and longer as students were keeping up with each other and then all of the replies. And I had a midterm and a final. Um, and I, I think it, it expanded a little bit too much. So I've been trying to trim down um, the responsibilities on the students' ends. But I think... Um, they felt like they felt like the lectures were effective, and I think they felt like they enjoyed engaging with their classmates through the discussion posts. Um, on my end, it's interesting because in some ways I get to I get to know the students even better than I do in a residential class, and I get to check on their progress much more consistently, right? Because if I'm teaching and there are you know 20 students in a classroom, some of them volunteer frequently. Um, Some of them I call on occasionally, they don't have as much to say, and I might not be able to tell if somebody is really falling behind or is really struggling with something and doesn't understand it. I might not be able to tell um, until the midterm or even until the final exam, at which point it's way too late. And with the online course, I can tell. I can say, "Uh uh-oh, something's not working here. Um, Let's talk about it. Let's review it a little bit. I also have been able to help with other types of issues. So I've been able to kind of spot um, 
challenges in legal research and writing. So what, you know, each, not every discussion post, but some of the discussion posts, which I designed to mirror the in-class discussions and the in-class exercises I always do, um, the, the best answers look a little bit like IRAC type answers. And you know what IRAC looks like. Some students can do it really effectively and, and cover all the bases. And some students kind of end up giving you conclusion, issue, conclusion, conclusion, and they never really get to the reasoning or they never really apply um, the rule to the specific facts that they're given, right? So with a number of students, I've been able to intervene there and say, I think you understand the doctrines, but I think you might bomb my exam and a lot of different, a lot of other exams that you have in school if you don't improve these skills. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the quality of the work product and sort of your experiences in terms of what the students are actually doing and what sort of progress you're seeing over the course of the semester. I I know you've been teaching for a long time, mostly synchronous in-class traditional law school classes. Um, Was the work meaningfully different? And at the end of the day, did you see similar kinds of progress or differences between the progress the students made in this class versus your other classes? Um, I was very impressed and frankly, very relieved (laughs) to see some really strong exams. So I've taught the online class twice. Um, and I, I went in with, I think a healthy dose of skepticism and I was like, how can this be as good? Um, how can the students learn as much and as effectively as they do when they're sitting in front of me? And then receiving some really strong exams makes me say, okay, it looks like they did, you know, whether it was for me or whether they're, it was really all the work that they put in and they were self-motivated, but somehow the students are getting to the same place in the end where I can basically use a similar exam to the one I use residentially and um, expect to see students fall on a similar curve. Mm. What about the discussion questions? I mean, like what was your experience leading online discussions as a method of legal pedagogy? And were there approaches that you found more or less effective? Like what prompted students to really engage? And what kind of approaches do you think um, sort of encouraged the most substantive and thoughtful engagement? Yeah, there are differences, obviously. So when I'm teaching a residential class, I do two things. One of them is, you know, just kind of leading discussion on certain points. So um, pushing people to engage in debate and take positions on things like, would you advise a client to, um, you know, take their registration and and, um, seek incontestability status? Or do you think trademark dilution is a doctrine that actually serves key policy goals or do you think we should get rid of it, right? And and get students to kind of think through some of those big picture questions. Um, And we also just do exercises. So I'll give them, for example, this week we were doing deceptive marks. So I gave them five examples and asked them to think about with the person next to them, you know, talk talk amongst yourselves, categorize these marks as deceptive or deceptively misdescriptive or not problematic and registrable or whatever it is. Um, So I try to kind of convert some of those different types of prompts into discussion prompts for the online class. And of course, that's, that's very much a learning process. So some of those questions fall a little bit flat 
or sometimes I'll, I'll find that the students just didn't quite understand what I meant. And I need to do a better job articulating the prompt for the future. I need to explain it better. I need to replace it with a different prompt. Um, in some ways, it's really easy for me to get out of the way in the online class in a way that I can't always when I'm leading discussion residentially in the moment, right? So um, I have a very expressive face. I'm also really good at reading students' faces. So I can kind of spot somebody sitting in my class and say, hmm, you look like you disagree with that. I feel like you have something to say on that point, um, which, which can be good and can be bad. So I decided early on in the online class that I was not going to insert myself into the discussion when the discussion was taking place. Right. So when students do the first round um, and they post responses to the prompt without being able to see anybody else's responses and then they reply to each other, I wasn't going to jump in and reply because I, my fear was that can kind of shut down the open conversation. And I wanted them to trust one another. I wanted them to learn from one another. Um, and that is that is what I saw. So that makes me think a little bit more about how can I incorporate more of that spirit into the residential class so that they're not always looking to me at the front of the room like, was that right? Was that OK? Did I get it or did I not get it? As compared to teaching a residential class, did you find that students were more or less or just differently sort of willing to sort of stake out a position and say what they think? and sort of own their own ideas? Yeah, they might have been a little bit more willing. So I, I usually found I would get a range of responses, which is what I was hoping for. Whereas sometimes in the classroom, you know, there's a little bit of peer pressure. If the first couple of people who respond are on the same side, then it can be hard to get somebody to speak up for the opposition. Um, but I think a good teacher can, and I, I love the students that I have residentially and, and they usually are pretty confident and don't mind voicing controversial opinions. So I, I've had effective discussions, um, in both settings. And I also sometimes structure the prompts in both settings, um, force people to take a particular position to say this half of the alphabet is going to argue this. And the other half of the alphabet is going to argue that, um, and I think that's a helpful exercise too. Um, well, I, I often wonder, like teaching traditional classes, whether there aren't issues with kind of like an esprit d'escalier in the sense of like, you know, like you don't think of the right answer until long after the discussion has yeah. actually concluded. I wonder if you think that works better or differently or kind of does the online sort of situation enable a, a degree of reflection that you might not see in another context? It definitely does. Um, and actually, one of the reasons in the residential class that I do the kind of small group discussion or think, pair, share is because a lot of people, I think, feel not just shy, but feel not ready to answer a question right on the spot and to be forced to make a decision, articulate a response. Um, and so when they break into pairs and I give them five minutes or seven minutes and I kind of walk around the room um, and sometimes I'll then ask them not what did you think, but what did your partner think? Or was there one of these that you and your partner disagreed on? Um, something like that, that I, I get responses from a broader range of people. So people who have had a few minutes to res to reflect or who have had a chance to kind of rehearse, like they've made an argument to one other peer. Now they feel ready to make that argument in front of the class and in front of the teacher. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that 
space for reflection and rehearsal and space to kind of like get comfortable with your thought before you, before you put yourself out there to be judged by everyone. I think that can be really helpful. And of course, in the online class, you get an even bigger dose of that. So you can check out the discussion prompt and then you can turn away for a couple of hours and think, Hmm, what do I actually think about that? What do I want to say about that? Um, and then, of course, it's really great to see them responding to each other, to see students replying to their peers in the discussion group and see minds getting changed. Like they say, oh, you know what? That was such a great point. I had felt really strongly that this use was not infringing. But now that you raise this particular issue about the audience sophistication, um, I, I might be reconsidering my position or I, I think that would be a really strong way to argue that case. So, um I've been lucky. I've taught the course twice and I've had great groups who had good chemistry and who were very respectful with one another. But it is always really nice to see the conversation develop that way. Well, so Alex, I mean, you know, you're like a Twitter personality, always like putting out really fascinating information about kind of trademark and other related issues on Twitter with your reflections often on on those issues. And, you know, and I've often borrowed a lot of those things that you do on Twitter to use in, in my own classes. Um, I, I wonder, you know, sort of to what extent you kind of take materials from the headlines as it were for your online students. And do you find that your students who are doing the online class kind of look to outside sources on their own in order to kind of reflect on and answer the questions that you're asking. And, you know, to like, what extent do you encourage them to do that? Cause it seems like that might be a context in which it would be, you know, more of an option, for example, than it would be in a, in a residential class. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, I have found that to be a little bit of a challenge with the online class because it is asynchronous and because so many of these lectures have, um, you know, the, the kind of modules have been, were designed to be self-contained. So in the residential class, I can just show up and I can say, oh, you know what's interesting? You know what happened yesterday? You know what somebody tweeted three days ago? Guess what's going on with this um, famous musician, guess what's going on with this celebrity dispute? Guess what's going on with this lawsuit that just got filed like an hour before I came to class? And I can share that with students and, and get their responses and get some discussion going. And I do think students really enjoy that. Um, with the online class, I can do that with the discussion prompts. It would be a lot more complicated and it would require me to kind of um, take down these videos and recreate pieces of those lectures from scratch if I wanted to make them as current as the residential coverage. Um, and, and that has felt like a little bit of a constraint for me, right? So the idea that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to create a video lecture in which I talk about a case that was assigned, but I'm not going to throw in, and hey, you know what I just heard this week? You know what's going on? Because that would make it really dated, right? So to say, um, obviously, we're talking about booking.com. I'm going to talk about the amicus briefs that just got filed. I'm going to talk about what I think the key issue is and what I hope the Supreme Court does. Um, and of course, for, for cases that change, you know, I am updating the content. So I am going to take down a couple of the videos I used this year, replace them with different lectures, different cases, things like that. But I can't be quite as nimble. I, I can't be um, quite as, I can't do as much ad-libbing and kind of 
creative in the moment. And, and that does frustrate me a little bit. But the other question you asked, the online students absolutely start paying a lot more attention. So once you're thinking about trademark law, I think you tend to see it everywhere. So I would get emails from students saying, hey, did you hear about this? Look what I just read on the fashion law. Um, or, or even just giving me broader context for a particular litigant in a case that I teach. So th- these are really curious students, really interested and engaged students. And I do think um, that part was equally present in the online and the residential class. So Alex, to, to kind of pivot to the videos a little bit, this is something I'm particularly interested in. Sort of how did you approach creating the online teaching materials sort of when it came to the drafting or conceptualizing how you were going to do it, were there principles you kind of kept in mind when you were putting those materials together? Um, You know, what did the people who were helping you put the materials together tell you if anything about how to sort of conceptualize your approach to creating those materials and sort of, did you get any student feedback or any sense of like which approaches were most, most effective and, and sort of what made those online video teaching materials um, really good as opposed to not so good? I didn't get a lot of guidance on that front. So like I said, I was really trying to mirror the residential class. So I basically started with my, you know, my syllabus and my lecture notes. And at one point um, I said, gosh, do you think I should script it out? Like, do you think I should write out everything I'm going to say? And that would make me sound so smooth and clean because I do a lot of ad-libbing. I do a lot of kind of improvising on the spot. And they said, no, no, don't do that. The way that you do it sounds great. um, And it feels really natural and students are going to enjoy that. So that's really what I do. I mean, my lecture notes are mostly bullet points. So I know what issues I want to cover. I know what questions I want to ask. And I'm not asking questions um, and then actually cold calling or taking volunteers and, and hearing students' opinions in the moment. But in some, some moments, you still want to frame something as a question and wait a beat and kind of push the people who are listening at home to think, oh, well, what is, you know, how would I brief that case? How would I articulate the issue in that case? And then continue on, right? Um they, I did get guidance to make sure that every little video, every little module was kind of self-contained and they're not as referential. They're not always looking back to the last case and ahead to the next case, which is hard because I, I do that in class and I think it's productive. So sometimes that just meant adding a really short video at the beginning or at the end of the module explaining, connecting the pieces, you know, explaining how the parts fit together, what the module covers, why the different, you know, why I do things in the order that I do them and answering questions like that. Um, The students, I I haven't had particular complaints, I don't think, or guidance about which types of videos they found most helpful. I did have at least one student this last semester say um, that they want, they want better technical ability, technological capability to jump around. Like I already watched this whole lecture and now I'm preparing for the exam and I want to be able to listen to it on double speed or one and a half speed, or I want to be able to jump to this part where you talk about this particular thing. So I think there's room for improvement on that front. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the, the content of the class? I mean, you've talked a little bit about why in some respects, the online approach was, you know, 
potentially kind of well-suited to teaching a trademark-related class, given how visual trademarks can be and how important it is to be sort of uh, presenting students with visual information for them to analyze and think about. Um, in your experience, you know, did that aspect of the class, do you think that was sort of like unique to the subject matter? Or do you think in a way that some of the values associated with online uh, legal education might translate to other subject matters as well? That trademark was the first class that I taught. But I do think that that my approach is not so inconsistent across other classes. So I also use plenty of slides when I teach contracts. Um, I don't. I, I, te- I use plenty of slides when I teach my undergrad courses, which is called Pop Culture and the Law. I will sometimes skip slides in Entertainment Law because that's more of a seminar discussion um, feeling where we all sit around in a circle and, and look each other in the eye. But I think there's a lot to be said for having a visual component, right? Not having death by PowerPoint where you have way too much text and people are trying to read it at the same time as you're talking at them. I know that's really painful and counterproductive, but just having a couple of bullets or just having an image that's at least somewhat related to the topic that you're discussing. Um, I know learning styles have been kind of celebrated and then discredited and people have different opinions about that. But I, for one, am not at all an audio learner. So I need to have something to look at. I need to have a pen or a highlighter in my hand. I need to be taking notes and kind of absorbing material in those different ways. And I think, yeah, I I think there's some flexibility for students in how when they're when they're taking an online class um, in making it suit their needs and um, engaging with the material in the way that suits them the best. So, Alex, in in closing, I mean, I feel like online legal education is very much kind of in the air. I know my own faculty has been talking about it, and there's a lot of people with a lot of different um, opinions about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, sometimes kind of strong opinions, Mm -hmm. but oftentimes opinions not based in actual experience. And, you know, you're one of the few people I know who has actual experience in approaching this kind of teaching. I wonder if you could kind of reflect briefly on sort of what you would say to people who are engaging in that conversation and what kinds of issues that faculty members should keep in mind when thinking about whether or not approaching online legal education as an option is a good idea for their institution. Sure. I think it absolutely can be effective. It can be rewarding. It can work really well for the faculty and the students, but you have to put the work into doing it really well, right? You have to either do the research or engage with the research or work with experts who know the research about how to present the material in a way that actually um, is beneficial to students in a way that they can understand it, keep up with it, engage with it, um, and really learn in ways that are as good as as, um, the ways and the extent to which they would learn in person, right? Um, for me, there was a bit of a challenge with like, well, how do you really get to know students in the way that you can then enthusiastically get on the phone with a potential employer and rave about a student and talk about how well you know that student? Um, and, and for me, one nice thing is some of my residential students have taken my online class. So they then can come to office hours in person and I can see their face and all that. But that's not crucial. 
I mean, I have also had online students who I've never met in person and I engage with them in writing week to week. And I do feel like I get to know um, their voice. I feel like I get to know their personality. So you can also do that. Um, Our new program is a hybrid program. So it's mostly online, but partially residential. So we've got students in a JD program who live all over the country Um, and they come to New Hampshire a couple of times a year for like four days at a time. And so again, we get to meet them. We get to have some face to face time. They get to meet each other and do some intensive classroom time during those few days. And then they go off and they have families and some of them have day jobs. Um, and then they can still keep up with their course load and they can still kind of use this alternative method. And I, I think it's really exciting And I'm talking to you right now. It's the first week in March. We're dealing with uh, coronavirus. And I think people are are thinking about all the different ways they can take their in-person obligations and commitments and shift them online and use things like Zoom and use technology to um, have conversations and look somebody else in the eye and not um, potentially transfer any germs. So, so we're at a really interesting moment and the technology is there and people have the access. So I think it's great for kind of access to education. I mean, I, I had a conversation with somebody who was like, I'm so excited about intellectual property law and I wanted to study IP law at a school that does it well, but I live in some place where I'm really isolated and I have a toddler. So what am I going to do? So I was so excited to find out about this particular program, right? Um, so overall, my experience has been great. I understand the skepticism and I was a skeptic and it's not something that, that will happen easily or magically. And it's not something that if you have no experience teaching online, you can just wake up one day and do it. You need to either partner with somebody who has that experience, um, or put in the work on the front end to understand how to do it well. Mm, Awesome. Well, Alex, thanks so much for sharing your experiences and thoughts on this subject. I think it's a really timely and important issue. And, um, you know, this has been really helpful for me in thinking about my own approach to this kind of new pedagogy. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for the opportunity. Those words were spoken by an electronic computer. They are an example of synthetic speech, a product of Bell Telephone Laboratory's research into the basic nature of speech. Knowledge developed through such research may be useful in devising new techniques for transmitting speech over communication systems. To make the computer talk, it is fed punched cards containing the names of speech sounds. The computer combines these sounds in accordance with the linguistic rules which govern the English language into connected, intelligible speech. For example, when the sounds for the sentence, He saw the cat, are fed into the computer in sequence, it says, He saw the cat. The flat, monotonous tones of the computer indicate an absence of the pitch and timing characteristics natural to human speech. When timing information is added to the punched cards, The computer says, He saw the cat. The sentence still sounds unnatural, but when pitch information also is added to the cards, He saw the cat. The computer speaks in accents almost completely human, except for a slight electronic twang. 
In the following sentence, most of the variables inherent in human speech have been specified on the punch cards. The computer makes one of the pivotal remarks in the development of the telephone. Mr. Watson, from here, I want you. The present quality of speech synthesis by computer is illustrated in the next example, part of a famous soliloquy from Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them to die to sleep. Singing, in purely physical terms, is essentially a matter of pitch and timing. In the next selection, the computer sings a familiar ditty. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage, but you look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. The computer now sings the same tune, but to a musical accompaniment played by another computer. Piano students will notice that the music-producing computer has a rather stylized left hand. Incidentally, Synthesizing music on a computer is almost as formidable as making a computer talk. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer too. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage, but you look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. To get the samples of synthesized speech we've heard so far, a computer's memory was stored with 34 speech sounds and a set of rules for producing these sounds and for making the transitions from one sound to another. When the computer was fed the names of speech sounds on punch cards, it was, in effect, told what to say. But its manner of saying it, even its dialect and apparent accent, was determined by the rules stored in its memory. The objective of this program is to formulate a minimum set of rules for making plausible English speech. The next two selections, however, were produced by analyzing a person's speech and reconstructing it synthetically on a computer. The objective here is to duplicate the sounds and transitions made by a human speaker, including his dialect and accent. With such a program, the computer sounds like this. Men strive but seldom get rich. That I should mind, I'd like to say a few words about Texas. And now the computer would like to express its appreciation for your attention. Thanks for listening. <laughs>